You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast. Before we get into our guest today, just wanted to uh, remind you to check us out on the internet on millionairesunveiled.com. Also on all the social outlets. We've been connecting with a few of you there. Love connecting with you and answering your questions and uh, getting to know you a little bit better. Also, definitely raising money, acquiring new properties uh, monthly. If you're interested, send us an email. It's again for accredited investors. And uh, we will follow up and uh, get in touch with you. So today on the show, we've got Taylor. And Taylor is young. He's not even 30 years old yet. Guest interview. He's built his net worth up to half a million dollars. And today we get into a little bit about how he's done that, the decisions that he's made, and kind of how he invests and how he plans to, to go about investing in the future. So without further ado, let's get right into the interview. All right, welcome to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast. Today on the show, we have Taylor. Taylor, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and what you're up to now? Sure. Uh, my name is Taylor. I'm 29 years old, and I'm currently a financial analyst for Fortune 50 company. Good stuff. And and what is your net worth today? Just over 500000 And how is that broken up? So it's broken up about 70 k in cash. I know I'm pretty, pretty cash heavy um, looking to potentially deploy that, but not sure exactly where yet. Um, about 350k of that is in investments. 220k of that is in taxable accounts, primarily in ETFs, which my taxable accounts, I haven't been as disciplined in terms of a concrete asset allocation. So it's split kind of randomly across a few different ETFs. Um, I mean, emerging markets, small cap value, total stock market, total international index. But like I said, it's that's a little sporadic. Um, and then from there, about 54K in 401K, 10K in an HSA, and then about 63K in a, in a row. Okay. And have you invested in your 401K and your Roth from the time that you were graduated from college? So good question. Yeah. And that's actually, um, I'm sure you'll probably ask about this later, but maybe one of the mistakes that I made is for some reason I had the perception early on in my working career that for some reason the 401k wasn't, it wasn't a good idea to always max out. Like I was told, invest up to the mat, the match, take the rest into the Roth IRA. Um, but for some reason I never went back to the 401k after that. And then I just maxed or put a lot more into taxable accounts. So that's why my taxable accounts are so much higher than my, than my or retirement accounts. I see. And is there any specific fund or fund family that that you like more than than the others, or one that you've decided to uh, to use? Well, a big one that that I really like is small cap value, primarily because when I was getting my MBA um, studying finance, they would talk a lot about I mean investments and historical investment returns and over the long term, historically small cap value stocks have returned the most. And so 
I definitely want to make that a large component of my portfolio, and it currently is. Um, but then there's, I mean, another thing that we would talk about in the MBA, which is the efficient frontier, which essentially is if you can add more or different volatile stocks together, as long as they're not correlated, and that can actually help to smooth out your portfolio. So that's why I like to add maybe some emerging markets, some international, some things that aren't 100% correlated. So I'm trying to add some of all of that component, really very light on bonds. So I'm hoping that can at least help to smooth it out a little bit since I don't have any of those bonds. And those are more in uh, index funds versus more actively managed mutual funds. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. There, um, I don't think I have any mutual funds anymore. Um, I did have some probably two to three years ago in Edward Jones, but I have since pulled the money from there and all, all passive. I guess I do have quite a few of my own individual stocks, which um, I'm in the process of pulling money out of those. A lot of them, when I hit the long-term capital gains, I'll be pulling money out of those. But... But yeah, I'm probably a little bit more heavy in individual stocks than than I should be, at least in my in, according to my ideology. So let me just I just want to back up a little bit. You know, it's pretty crazy. You're 29. You, your your net worth's five hundred thousand dollars. People listening to this are going to think that you know that's that's so young. So how did you get started? Um, did was that from working through high school and college, or how were you able to build up your net worth so quickly? Yeah, good question. I the answer to that is no. And I actually didn't work through through college, really. I worked during the summers. And so that was enough to basically provide for me during the school year. And then I would go back in the summer, restart all over again. So I was working for probably about a year after I graduated from college, making, when I came right out of college, I was making $12 an hour. Shortly thereafter, about 30 grand a year. And I was working for about nine months before I got married to my wife. And before I married her, I probably had a net worth of around 10 to 15,000. Um, so it just, I wasn't making a ton of progress primarily because I was just spending a lot more and my income was also, was obviously a lot lower. And you were, so how, you were how old at this point? Sorry to know. I was 25 at the time. Okay. So, so yeah, I mean, my net worth was not, not very high, but then when I married my wife, Lucky, lucky for me, she actually, she's always been a big saver. And we were both fortunate that we had parents that were able to help us in college. We also picked a cheaper college to go to that they were actually able to help us with that. And I got scholarships to cover most of my college education. So we didn't have any student loans. But on top of that, my wife also worked throughout all of college, 20 plus hours a week. So she actually left college with a net worth of like 15000 so combining that with me and then she got a job right out of the gate making like 24, 25,000 a year. But the big difference was she was, she's just extremely frugal that she doesn't like to spend money on basically anything, which is great. She's not the stereotypical wife that's running up the Amazon balance or anything like that. So I would say the big thing that changed was marrying her and just starting to have, starting to have some money that, um, in the moment, it may have been a little frustrating because I was adapting to spending less. But then I would look back three months and see my checking account was substantially more. I would look at my mint.com account and see that my net income every month was four to five times higher than it was before I married her. And I was just thinking, wow, this is actually pretty cool to start having some money and not 
to just barely be squeaking by. So then at what point did you decide to go get the MBA and why did you decide that? Was that just to boost the income or, you know, to just boost the education or a little bit of both? I would say definitely a little bit of both. That was also um, a lot, like my wife was very much on board with that because a big concern she's always had is that if I didn't have the MBA, then at a certain point when I was in line for a promotion potentially, that I would be passed over by someone who did have an MBA. So, so that was always a big priority, which we were originally looking at at BYU, because going back to my wife being frugal, she didn't want to spend a lot. So BYU, you can get an MBA for 20000 for the whole thing for a full-time program. Um, and I was also interested in full-time because uh, I wanted to pivot in my career. I wasn't totally satisfied with what I was doing, so I felt full-time would be best to kind of open up some more, some more possibilities for me. But I ended up applying to Arizona State, and I was, I'm from Arizona, so it was a great opportunity to come back. And at the time, they were actually trying to make a play to move up the rankings. And basically what that, that meant is they were giving out a lot of financial aid to attract more students to go to the school, which basically meant they offered me essentially a full-ride scholarship. It was all but about $3,000. So I was able to go to what is now a top 25 school for like $3,000. So that was, I, I definitely lucked out there, but I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have gone to ASU had, had it been 50,000, 75,000. Sure. So then you went and did your MBA. So you had, you know, 50K net worth at, at 25 and now you're up to 500 in the next four years or five years. Was that just... Did you have a high income coming out of the MBA? Did your wife's income increase? How were you able to, to boost that so high in a short amount of time? Yeah, I would say, again, I'll, I'll give a lot of credit to my wife because she's, um, she's a hard worker. So now both of our incomes are over 100000 but she's, she's, in, she's always done really well with sales. So obviously, we lost my income for some of that time. I did have an internship for part of that time that I made decent money. But primarily, it was her carrying the load for two of those years. Um, and really, so yeah, I would say the difference is we've dramatically increased our income. So this year, we should be at 250, maybe a little bit more. Um, so we've, we've been able to dramatically increase our income while keeping expenses pretty low. I would say our expenses are 35-ish thousand a year currently. So those were, I guess, the big, the big differences. Good stuff. So I'm curious, have you ever used a financial advisor? I did use a financial advisor primarily because my dad set up an Edward Jones account for me. So by the time I graduated from college, I had probably like five or 6,000 in an Edward Jones account. And I did contribute a little bit of money to that along the way. But then I started looking at the fees for that account, like I think it was like 75 basis points. So more than I was comfortable with once I started learning more about personal finance. Um, and while I did value his opinion, I feel like there's so much that you can do online for like the DIY stuff that I felt like I'm interested in this enough that it's not worth me paying money for something that I legitimately enjoy doing. So when we bought our house about a year ago, um, I was able to use that as an excuse because unfortunately I did have a personal relationship with the advisor. And as I'm sure people that have had advisors know, it's hard to 
hard to terminate that relationship sometimes. So that was a great excuse for me to say, hey, I actually need this money for a down payment. We, we had money for a down payment, but it was, it was a good excuse to pull out. Like I think I had 17 or 18,000 in there at the time. So currently no financial advisor except for whatever various forums and groups I belong with. Interesting. So have you ever wanted to get into real estate or have you kind of said, hey, I'm going to be 100% in the markets you know, for the time being? No, and that's definitely something that I'm interested in. And that's why partially I am so cash heavy right now. I'm just kind of exploring the market. Like I mentioned, I'm in Arizona, currently in the Phoenix area. And cap rates don't really excite me too much, which um, I guess I haven't done a ton of due diligence to find off-market deals. But I'm definitely interested in that. And I'm starting to get my, my feet wet. It's just taking me a little bit of, a little bit of time to, I guess, get the understanding. For some reason, I just gravitated towards stocks almost immediately. I understood stocks really well, not in terms of like the technical analysis, but just the power of investing in stocks. Awesome. So what are your, do you and your wife have financial goals? Or are you just kind of playing it by ear and, and you're going to, you know, keep saving and keep investing? Do you have a, a goal, a number, a net worth goal, a cash flow goal, or, or anything along those lines? I would say the main goal that we're we're shooting for now because it was a big goal of mine to have a half million dollar net worth by age 30. So we did do that. Um, now kind of the next step is to have a net worth of a million by 35. And obviously that's going to be highly dependent on what the market does because as I am starting to be more and more invested in the market, if the market decides to crash a year or two before I'm 35, I may not hit that, but I'm, I'm comfortable with, with doing that. And I mean, obviously we're, we are in the financial or the retire early movement. We're hoping, we're hoping to do that at some point. I don't have a specific goal for that just because we don't have any kids yet. And I'm not sure how that'll impact the budget when we introduce kids. So at this point, we're really just trying to save as much as possible, but also have a little bit of fun along the way. Like we just went on a cruise last week. We went to, Disney World in October of last year. So really just trying to focus on those things that give us a personal return as well. So not just spend money on going out to a restaurant five or six times a week. We want to spend it on things that we'll, we'll remember in the future. And what part is, is charitable giving played, uh, if any, in, in your, you know, growing your net worth? It's a good question. I mean, I don't know if I can really point to to anything specific in terms of returns to me, but we do try and pay a tithe. Um, and I mean, we've always had enough. So I, aside from, aside from that, I do try and help people out. Um, I'm, I try and be open with my time as well. So I think often we think of charitable giving in terms of just giving people money, but I constantly reach out to my friends, ask them how they're doing. And especially in terms of investing personal finance, because this is such a big hobby of mine, if I can, if I can help them there, I've actually been communicating with two of my friends over the past two days, just trying to help them in any way possible to get on top of personal finance. So I would say that it has, it has helped me again, non-quantifiable, but I think, I think it's been a positive in my life. No, I think you make a great point there too, that it's not just 
it's not just financial, you know, it's given of time, it's given of resources. If, if you're able to teach about personal finances, it's able to help those that are, that are interested. So what do people say to you, either friends or family or, or, you know, random people that you meet, if they find out that, you know, you, you've done that well financially, maybe they don't know the exact numbers, but mm-hmm. are they surprised or what's their reaction? Of course, they're probably surprised. Yeah, I would say definitely surprised. I was just talking to a friend actually today and where we've been pretty good friends going back. And when he kind of leveled with me about his investment portfolio, I kind of told him mine. And of course he was shocked by that. So it's either, I would say shocked or they tell me to go out and buy something, which is kind of bizarre. My, my favorite is a coworker who I've kind of alluded to how much I have and he constantly says like you'd look really good in a tesla i think you should go buy a tesla (laughs) and i'm i'm not opposed to buying a tesla but at this point i'm building that i'm building my my wealth building my assets so that hopefully in the future my assets can pay for multiple teslas not just i'm trading time for money today to pay for pay for those liabilities what are some of your biggest expenses now I mean, definitely the mortgage. If we had, we're, we're trying to pay off our mortgage a little early. We're trying to pay it off in like 15 years. And yeah, if we, if we could get rid of that, I mean, that's by far and away our, our biggest, which we didn't stretch for it. We could have definitely gotten a bigger house, but I would say our budget is on average like 3,500 a month and towards our mortgage, we're paying 2,100 because again, we're making those extra payments. So aside from that, um, we try and keep everything else very minimal, um, a thousand, twelve hundred, fifteen hundred, and I honestly don't feel like at this point that we're depriving ourselves. Again, we try and do fun things. We just don't spend that in the way that other people do. That going to the store all the time and buying hundred dollar shirts and three hundred dollar purses. Like we're we're not buying as many objects. We're saving that and spending it on experiences. Do you know what your savings rate has been over the course of this journey to get yourself to a half million net worth? Yeah, I would say probably like 60, like 60 plus percent savings rate. And do you plan for that to kind of continue into the future? Yeah, the big, the big factor is going to be when we do have kids, what my wife decides to do with work, because we're trying to keep that flexible. Um, I don't ever want to force her to go to work, but currently she's the type of person that it seems like she would enjoy working even when having kids just, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say, but kids are, she has a hard time with kids right now being around them all day. So I'm sure when there are kids, that'll change things. But I think that she would value going to work, but at the same time we're, we're keeping that open. So if she wants to stay home, she can stay home. So obviously if we do that, expenses would go up, income would go down, the savings rate would, would, probably drop. But at that point, I'm not really too concerned. I mean, because of compound interest, we're adding our money in early, and then we'll let compound interest do the hard work for us. So we'll just play that one by ear, I guess. What advice would you give to, you know, maybe the millennial that is just kind of starting out building their portfolio or even, you know, the new college grad, if they want to get on a path to, to what you're doing and where you're at, at, you know, say 30 or 35? Yeah, I I was thinking of this and um, 
I came up with like a few little bits of advice. The first thing is one of my favorite sayings, live the way others won't live today so you can live the way others can't live tomorrow. Because I feel like too often I hear the excuse, oh, I want to enjoy my money today. I don't want to die with millions of dollars in the bank. But ultimately, that's just an excuse, in my opinion. And often people spend money on things they don't actually value. Like maybe they're spending, they're going out to eat four or five nights a week and literally spending four or five, six, seven hundred dollars a month. So I think really focusing on that. Um, the next thing I would say to read maybe the, the top personal finance books out there and then find a podcast or a blog that resonates. Luckily, there's hundreds, if not thousands of blogs out there. So if one doesn't resonate, I would say immediately drop it, move on to something else. But just to keep that top of mind and then definitely budget. Like I think budget has a bad connotation or maybe just seems more difficult than it is. And my wife and I, we don't actually really budget, surprisingly. What we do is we just use mint.com. We both have the login to the account and we just constantly look at transactions. We're, I'm sure that we log in multiple times a week, both of us, and just kind of looking at transactions. And as you're doing that, as you're categorizing things, you really start to see where you're spending your money. And so just naturally you start to see if you're spending more money eating out than you're comfortable, or if you're spending more money at the movies, then you can cut back on things like that and just make sure it's going towards things you value. So those would be my advice is really focus on maybe potentially holding off on things, understanding the, the value of compound interest and what that can do for you if you get started early. Yeah, I think that's that's great advice. I totally agree. How much time do you think a week on average do you spend on your investments, whether that's you know, reallocating or buying things or just learning about personal finance. How, how many, how much time do you spend on that? So learning about personal finance, I would say conservatively five to 10 hours a week. Um, but that's primarily coming through books and podcasts and primarily podcasts. I'm, I'm a big podcast listener, so I've got my favorites and they're not all financial per se. Some of them are are more business oriented, but even those business oriented ones bring up financial concepts. So I spend a lot of time there. In terms of my um, my portfolio, I spend very little time on my portfolio, and I don't even really rebalance my portfolio. Since our income is high enough, I just when I buy, I just buy into the things that are undervalued or that are maybe underweighted in my portfolio, and so that's that's my rebalancing. Um, but yeah, very little time I've. I'm trying to get out of the individual stock game. So, cause that takes up by far the most amount of time. So once I'm, so since I'm dropping that, my portfolio is extremely passive. What single stock do you have the most invested in? Just out of curiosity. Uh, right now, Amazon. Which, that's, a, that's a good one, right? Yeah. Yeah. I bought, I think I have like 30,000, which my Principle is 15, so it's over 100% since I'm in. And that's, so there are a few of those technology stocks. Those are the ones that are hard for me to let go just because I'm a big believer in Amazon and Facebook, Netflix, um, and their ability to continue into the future. But of course, they've got crazy PEs right now. So if, if that PE changes a little bit, then 
the stock price could drop through the floor. But yes, those are some of the ones that are hard for me to let go. Have there been any big mistakes you've made or, or anything you regret doing that maybe you could offer some advice to somebody to not make those same mistakes? Yeah, I would say um, I alluded to this earlier, but just maxing out the tax advantaged accounts. Um, I, again, had that false understanding early on that for some reason, the 40K, 401k was a was a bad thing or really just max out to the match and then move on to to other accounts. And for the life of me, I can't really understand why I had that perception. So I would say max that out. And then a commonly forgotten about account is the HSA. Like I, my opinion is the HSA is the single best investment vehicle. So I think maxing that out is a must. And then ideally not even using that every year. So ideally rolling that over, investing that, because that's the only money you'll make that you're not going to be taxed on since it goes in tax-free. You pull it out tax-free as long as you use it correctly. So those would be those would be my my first one, just max out those accounts. And then the second one was, this isn't a, a huge mistake per se, but because I do love our house, I love living in our house, having our own space. But I wish that I would have attempted to house hack by either getting a duplex, triplex, fourplex, and then living in one of the units and renting the rest out. So again, that would have meant more apartment living and we'd been doing that forever. So it is great to have our own space, but that would have been huge in propelling us on this financial independence journey. One thing I want to ask you about is, is how you've kind of gone about you know, the career navigation, because you've both done very well in, in getting six-figure incomes and you don't have doctorate degrees. What advice would you have for, for a millennial on, on some of the career navigation to get to some of these higher income um, jobs or, or professions that allow you to save at 60 and 70 and 80% of your income? Yeah, I would say, first and foremost, you're always a free agent. I think too often people feel like they're tied to a job or they feel loyal to a company when most companies will cut you as soon as you're not valuable. So there's no reason why you shouldn't be open to also taking a new a new job. And that was one thing that I did really successfully that I got recruited by a company before my before my MBA. And I believe at the time my salary was like thirty eight thousand. And then I got recruited by a company. I interviewed. They gave me an offer. I went back to my boss and I said, hey, they actually gave me a lot more money. I don't want to leave. Like, I really like where I am. But part of me feels like I would be stupid not to take more money. And then he just said, OK, we'll we'll match it. We'll actually beat that a little bit. So he raised my salary to like 54000 So, I mean, that was a great way to make essentially an extra 20000 a year. So I would say, first, you're a free agent. And then second... Just try and pick something that there's higher um, higher earning potential. Like often people are working in something that they know that their earning is, is capped. And it's hard if that's something they're passionate about. That's something that um, you should be willing to overlook earning potential. But if it's something you don't really care for, then I would say look in those areas that there's there's higher earning potential. Like I mentioned, my wife is in sales, obviously very high earning potential there. I'm a financial analyst, and that's kind of a mixed bag. I wouldn't say it's necessarily like sales, but if you're working for the right company, you can make good money doing that. So 
make sure you're looking in the right area. Make sure that you're always a free agent, always looking for those offers because eventually there's going to be an offer that shocks you that you happen happen to land that's a big a big bump from where you're currently sitting. Yeah, I think it's good advice to stay open-minded. You know, I think sometimes you don't expect an offer to come or you might not be looking, um, but if the right thing comes, that's something you got to jump on. What's your what's your opinion about uh, on debt? Whether, you know, that's you going out and buying a property and getting a mortgage or or do you want to pay all in cash? What's been your mindset on that and maybe, you know, credit cards as well? No, I definitely understand the power of leverage in real estate. I'm not super interested in like the no money down or my opinion is if I don't have enough money for at least a down payment on a property, at, at least when I'm really green in the process and don't really understand it, then I don't feel like I have a reason buying that property. Um, in terms of credit cards, we use them, but we pay off the balance in full. I have a pretty old car right now. And so I'm actually on the market for a new to me car, a new used car. And we're looking to buy that in cash. So, but it's also not going to be a a super expensive car. Um, So yeah, I try and avoid debt. I would say I wouldn't call myself terribly risk averse based on what my portfolio is, but I, I do like to have as much cash flow as possible. So obviously with, with debt, um, that doesn't go away if you lose a job. It doesn't go away. So I prefer to mitigate that as much as possible. But I would say real estate is the one thing that I'm a little more open to. But definitely probably putting a substantial down payment down, or in the first place. Good stuff. All right, Taylor with a net worth over half a million dollars. Thanks for coming on the show today. For sure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Taylor. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled Podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.